millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Kate Mossman, and you're listening to a special bonus episode of World Review from The New Statesman. Today, as part of Greta Thunberg's guest editorship of The New Statesman, I'm bringing together Greta and the Icelandic singer-songwriter Björk. The world's leading voice for climate action and the world's most original musician have collaborated in the past on Björk's 2019 Cornucopia tour, but they've never met till now. Today we bring them together over Zoom from Sweden and Iceland, saving a carbon footprint of around 0.5 tonnes, to discuss their shared activism and their recent creative work. Greta's new anthology, The Climate Book, is an epic guide to achievable climate action, which collects essays by over 100 scientists, academics, activists and thinkers. Björk's album Fasura, a made-up word meaning she who digs, is a meditation on the earth from a matriarchal perspective. To start, Björk explains how their initial collaboration came together. I did a concert in 2019. I sent Greta and her team a request, and she recorded herself saying her like an environmental manifesto. We included it in our show, Utopia. I just like to thank you, Greta, in person. <laughs> and I feel like I hear your voice, like I've heard it so often when I'm running behind stage. And <laughs> it's uh, so I've been in the presence of your voice, yeah, a few years now. Thank you. Thank you very much. And yeah, it's a great honor to talk to you. And thank you for that. And I also know that you invited some of my friends and fellow activists to go up on stage during the concert in Sweden. I wondered if you could tell us a little about the role of music in your life, because you obviously come from a musical background, your family, your mother's an, an opera singer. And I wondered yeah. what music means to you and whether it plays a part in your interior world, as it were. I mean, of course, I always have a song in my head. Even when I'm doing interviews and stuff, I have a song that I go through in my head. It's to stay focused because otherwise my mind drifts off and I get to, I can't keep focus, of course, yeah. But yeah, I come from a musical background. All of my family are musicians, but I'm the only one who is not. <laughs> so I guess I rebelled in that way. But yeah, music is a very important part in, in creating these kind of cultural shifts and social 
norm changes that we need in order to address the climate emergency. And it's a really important way to mobilize people. And it's something that we have used in many different ways. For example, we have organized different concerts for the climate. And yeah. yeah. I just read your book. I'm just so blown away by it. Congratulations. It's, I just finished it and I'm just so inspired and obviously very sad because the situation is worse than we even thought it was. But also there are some very hope-inspiring moments there to encourage us to act. And also because of, I've been also thinking just about our northern countries, because it's like we get on the surface, it looks like we get few years longer than the south. But obviously that's not the case. And and it was just very inspiring with the whole ideas with with the, the chapter about adding seaweed into the ocean and how we can reforest the ocean environment, not just on the earth and also reviving Animals and sea creatures. Sorry, I got overexcited to say that it, it, I really want to try to initiate some sort of action here in Iceland to focus on these issues. It was uh, inspiring yeah. to read your book. Thank you. I'm glad to hear. I also I listened to a Fusora uh, today and I find it, yeah, it's very cool. I really like the sort of idea behind it. I also read an interview in a Swedish newspaper and like going going back to the roots and I'm focusing on that, if I interpret it correctly. And so, yeah, thank you for that. And thank you for using your platform to, to highlight these issues. But I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed the book. The emergency is more clear now and it's become like the most important thing to talk about right now. Like every day you can look at the news and the, every single issue won't matter in five years, but you could just isolate the news about the environment, that's actually what is going to matter. And I think musicians are aware of it. I think also it is very generational. I think the generation that's coming in now, I have kids, both a millennial kid and a Gen Z kid, and they're telling me, telling me off. So I think that's amazing. It is the next generation coming in. We could also talk for many hours about matriarchal, that there's more room for matriarchal point of views. Now, when I was a kid, it was just Kate Bush and that was it. The rest was women entering guys' worlds. And I feel like I'm like a typical example of a female matriarchal musician where I not just talk about me. I have to talk, they have more tendency of looking at the whole picture. So I have to look, take in. My children, my ancestors, the land. That's something we could talk about for years. <laughs> it's a very big subject matter I'm not going to go into right now. But I think there is a lot more space in the world today for more matriarchal uh, point of views. Uh, I feel like within, with your music, you, you're you interested in the idea of, of reaching into nature. With biophilia, you had a connection with nature that was a, almost a visceral, physical kind of interest in the biosphere. And I wondered if both of you could maybe tell us a little bit about a place close to home that's very special to you in both of your countries. I live in a city, so it's more difficult to find places in nature to, co- to connect with. But one of my favorite activities is to go in Stockholm around the water, along the water, and just because it makes me calm. I love taking long walks in the forest. Also, there's a specific forest which I used to walk in when I was younger with my dogs. And that has, of course, a special place in my heart. I, like, like Greta, I live in 
capital in the north. <laughs> and I, we have access to the ocean, so I actually live on a beach, which I go for walks a few times a week. But, but I also go a lot to a lake. I have a cabin by a lake, which is 40 minutes away. So I, that's very precious to me, this lake. Yeah, I think just so I also answer your question about biophilia, I think for me, when I studied musicology as a child, I always never understood when it was like mapped to this sort of this old world of Mozart and all that. I couldn't really relate to that. But I was very happy when the touchscreens came because then I could take patterns from nature, like how a lightning moves or a pendulum and connect pendulum to counterpoint or lightnings to arpeggios. So I used uh, shapes in nature to connect them with musicology. And also you could touch it. Actually, the, the areas where it worked had really good luck was in where, when we brought it to the school, especially with neurodivergent kids who think of music as a three-dimensional thing. It's spatial, which it should be. And putting it into a two-dimensional book was offensive to, but that they could touch it and move a pendulum and they understood counterpoint. I also think that it was the lack of access to nature that also impacted me in many ways to become an activist because I felt like I was missing something. And that's also right now what I'm to a large extent fighting for, to bring back nature to our lives because it feels like many... For many people, we have distanced ourselves so far from nature that we can no longer identify with it. And that is that is something that is... Of course, the climate emergency and the environmental emergency is not only about us reconnecting to nature. It is a bubble that to save lives and secure future and present living conditions. But also, I think an important aspect of it is to be able to reconnect to nature and find what we are fighting for. Yeah, that's beautiful captures. Sorry, I almost go back to Greta's book <laughs> about yeah. rewilding. And uh, it's just very inspiring how we can reintroduce plants, animals and sea creatures back yeah. into the environment. I think it's very exciting. Greta, you, you said a couple of years ago in an interview with The Guardian, we can have as many cops as we want, but nothing will come out of it. And I wondered... <laughs> how you feel about COP generally and any hopes for COP27? I think that quote continues, or at least what I said is we can have as many COPs as we want to, but as long as nothing changes, it it will not make a difference. As it is now, the COPs, the conference of parties, are not designed to reshape our entire system. It is not designed to actually represent the people. It is designed to a large extent to represent lobby groups and nations and be, become a platform for na nations and greenwashers, polluters, to 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 greenwash simply to say that oh we are doing enough and we have gathered here because we care about the environment. And then when, for example, during COP twenty six, the fossil lobbying lo lobbyists were bigger, had a bigger representation than any nation. So as it is now, it is not meant to actually make a difference. And as long as the general awareness the general level of awareness is so low as it is today, they will get away with it. All they do is that they gather sometime in every few years or something, and then they make new targets and pledges only for them to, to break them and then make new ones. 
and so on. So unless we educate people and inform people about what is actually happening and create this big movement of people demanding change, pressure from the outside, the cops will not make a difference. I do have a big hope. I did have a big hope for when you declare emergency situation that at least you get more finances to emit, like hopefully as quickly as when we dashed with the pandemic, that was where we managed to make a vaccine in 10 months, which is incredible. It's like a miracle and distributed so quickly. So yeah, I think that something very, very traumatic has to, to happen, more traumatic has to happen for it to to deliver any sort of success or yeah progress. I also must add something that that doesn't mean that the cops are not useful. For example, that they are not an opportunity to mobilize. They are a big opportunity to mobilize. If we have representation there from the most affected people in the most affected areas, if we have representation from scientists, from indigenous peoples and so on, and from young people, then that will have an impact and push things forward. But while we are, while we make sure that is the case, we must also communicate that this alone will not be enough. We need a massive pressure from the outside too. I was curious as to how you both balance optimism and pessimism, which are two things for anybody who's concerned with the mm. environment that are in sort of perpetual disharmony with each other. Could you tell me a little bit about feelings of optimism and pessimism? That's a very big question. I obviously released a track that just where I repeat, hope is a muscle, hope is a muscle, hope is a muscle. <laughs> so it is something you need to work on. It doesn't come fall from the sky. Obviously, you have to take in truths and stuff that are around you. And then, of course, come with some sort of proactive action. Yeah, I obviously, as a mother of two children, this is a big, I think th this comes very naturally for me, I think, to think in this way, because when I think if you are maybe women in general, if when you are bringing up kids, you have to have some sort of sense of continuity or somewhere to go to or a place to head for in 20 years or 40 years or 60 years. So I feel like this is a sort of responsibility that is woven more naturally into mothers. And I was a mother at 20, so it, that, that's always been sort of part of my my music writing. But I'm definitely, if you read the lyrics of my new album, there is a lot of talk about hope there, but there's also a lot of, a lot of my songs dashed with some sort of conflict. And then in the middle of the track, you transform and you figure out somehow a way to deal with that issue. So I do hope that it does have both. It's not trying, it's not escapist. It's, it's trying to deal with real issues and then transform and figure out some sort of a way to, to move forward. Yeah, I completely agree that some, the hope is something you need to work on. It is not something that you can just expect to be given to you while just leaning back and and yeah, passively just watching. Hope is something you need to engage in. It is something you need to earn. It is hope is not something that we receive. It is something that you make yourself to create or to create. It feels like people are so obsessed today with to ask, is there hope? Is there still hope? Because they feel like without hope, they cannot act when it's the exact opposite. When they act, it is, they create hope. It does feel like many people dump that I don't I don't know 
if I should say burden or responsibility, dump that on the children, on the young people, expect us to be the ones delivering that hope. And of course, that's not a fair thing to do, both because we aren't the ones who have created this crisis. We are uh, the ones in the future who are going to be suffering th from the consequences. But And now they also expect us to deliver them that hope while not doing anything. I find that very absurd. Do you feel more or less hopeful than you used to, do you think, if you were to rewind five years? Both. <laughs> Once is because we are moving in the wrong direction. The concentration levels of CO2 is higher today than it was then. Our emissions are still rising and we have lost yet another few years to inaction and lobbying of actually doing something. But also, I have also seen what people can do. I have seen what we can create together if we really put our minds into something. We were able to mobilize millions of people on a span of a few months, just maybe a handful of school children. And that is something I would never have believed would be possible before. Also reading about and the Sami people mm. was mind-blowing for me and your sincerity, Greta, in talking about how the Swedish dealt with that. And also, yeah. obviously, the permafrost, things like this is just, I don't know if you want to add anything about, about some future projects we should focus on more than others. Me? Or just, yeah, maybe it's unfair to ask you to be the leader there. But but if, is there something you w want, would like to add your thoughts on how we in the North focus, what things to focus on most? Since we are so close to the Arctic, so high up, the temperature here is rising much quicker than in the rest of the world, which is something that we tend to forget. In Sweden, a huge part is above the Arctic Circle and many countries as well. And here and in, and in everywhere up north, there is a huge problem with all the, the weather patterns more, more or less destabilizing. I've talked a lot to Sami people, as you mentioned, indigenous people living here, and they are describing how they can no longer trust the weather because sometimes it's raining in winter and then that completely destroys the conditions for, for example, the reindeer, as we discussed in the book. It creates a thick layer of ice so that they can't get to the food and they starve to death. These unexpected consequences of the climate emergency that we fail to, where we fail to connect the dots, but also, so I, I definitely think that we need to be better at educating people about this, informing, because when we think about the climate crisis, we tend to think about polar bears starving and glaciers collapsing and so on. But when it comes to these everyday events that it actually has got things to do with the climate crisis, we we fail to draw the connections and especially the things that are causing the problem itself, we just don't focus on, which is something that we all can work on. I also really enjoyed all the talk in your book of carbon capture storage. Mm, yeah, that was about Iceland. <laughs> yes. But I like, like it was pointed out several times in the book, which I'm very happy about is if there are as many CCS, as you call them, carbon capture storage in the world as there are oil refineries, then maybe you will start to see some sort of result. So I think it just has to be done on such a, every single country needs to be doing them to show some sort of, and it could just be one solution of 
thousands. It cannot just be the solution. And just the fact there is a one place in Iceland doing it now, it's not going to, mm. unfortunately, not change a lot. Yeah. I don't know. It's not exactly a question, but do you, do you yeah. have anything to talk about? Yeah. It's that? the largest carbon capture and storage facility is in Iceland. And it's, I remember even in, in Stockholm, it was like big co- campaigns where energy companies posted pictures of that facility and was like, yeah, this is the future, that which was greenwashing. This facility, if all goes to plan, goes according to plan, it will be able to capture about two seconds of our annual carbon <laughs> dioxide emissions mm-hmm. according to climate scientists' calculations. And if we are to reach our target, that our climate targets are completely dependent on these, that they will work on scale and so on. And yet we still fail to invest in them. We are not only being used as a way of greenwashing and leg- legitimizing the bad things we are doing now, but also we also fail to invest in them, which is very contradictory to say the least. Do you feel like if there was yes in every country in the world, it would make an impact? Sorry, I don't want to put you up against the wall. <laughs> Just no, yeah, of course it will make an impact, <laughs> yeah. but. CCS cannot be seen as a substitute for drastic immediate emission cuts, but that doesn't mean that we should invest every possible resource in it. So we need to do everything we possibly can. We no longer have the luxury to pick and choose between the actions we want. How big is this problem of greenwashing, do you think, Greta? Do you think it's a very pernicious aspect in the fight against climate change at the moment? I think it is one of our biggest obstacles. The people I am around are mostly, basically all of them are climate activists, or at least very aware of the problem. And then sometimes when I go outside that bubble, I'm reminded that people actually think that we are making improvements, generally speaking. And they say that, I think we are focusing too much on the negative things that we need to talk about the positive things that politicians are actually trying and, and so on. And yeah, but should we not look at the whole perspective and so on? Because politicians and people in power seem to take every opportunity they get to communicate that we are doing something, that we are moving in the right direction, whether it is this one facility on Iceland or whether it is something else. And this has become a strategy, the same as I talked about earlier, that they set up targets and then fail to meet them. For example, in Sweden, we only include about one third of our actual total emissions. And of course, that makes it look much better uh, because if we exclude two thirds of the problem, then it's much less of a problem and our improvements and achievements seem much, much greater. So it's constantly this mentality that to sweep things under the carpets and use PR tactics and communication strategies to make it seem as we are moving in the right direction when in fact we are not, when we are actually expanding fossil fuel infrastructure, when the emissions both here on a national level and also on a global level are actually increasing. So greenwashing is a huge problem. But it could also be seen, if we have to look at the positive side of things, it could be seen as a sign that people want a climate action and they want more ambitious climate plans and so on, which is why the people in power are so desperate to to come up with these to make it look like they're doing something because there is an interest and that interest is something that we can use to our advantage instead of as it is now the people in power are using it 
against us. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as one pound a week. That's twelve weeks for just twelve pounds. That's one euro a week in Europe and just two dollars a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com/podcastoffer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud, featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Have either of you ever come across a politician that's impressed you yet? I remember Greta's said in the past that she's still not been impressed by politicians. And I wondered whether there'd been any movement on that. Depends on how you define impressed. Sometimes I've been impressed by their cooking or something else, but that's a completely <laughs> different thing. But I don't think I have seen, I have met a politician that is ready to do what it takes. And by that, I don't mean pushing from the inside. By that, I mean resigning and saying that this is not working and I'm not going to be a part of it. It seems like everyone in that world seem, seems to believe that they are the exception, the one that is going to be able to save things, the one that is going to be able to mobilize from the inside when everyone else has failed before. And of course, we need 
of course, it's good to have people on the inside that are advocating for change and for climate action. But as it is today, we have to question ourselves what it would be the most effective thing to do right now. Is it to try to change things very slowly from the inside? Or is it to just say, as I said, to say, this is not working and I'm going to resign? That would be the thing that would create more attention. And what we need now is to wake people up, to send a clear message that we are in an emergency. And that I have not seen from any politician. I should add, though, that it's not up to single individuals and politicians to make to do this. But of course, they have been put in these positions with lots of power. They have to use it. And using it means using that platform to communicate the emergency. I, yeah. I tend to go to story which happened in London. I'm sorry, I don't have exactly the year, but it's like 100, 200 years ago when they stopped using coal. And there was um, a moment where everybody in London could not see the sky and, th and everybody had some sort of breathing problems. And everybody had just accepted, oh, the future, if you want the future, you have to not see the sky and have breathing problems. And uh, if you want, don't want that, just go back to your farm. And then this one mayor just, just made coal illegal and then in, in just a matter of weeks, you could see the sky and, the, and a lot of the breathing problems went away. Obviously, that's problematic because that's literally fascism. <laughs> well, well, I don't know. Like, how do you feel about mandatory measures like that? Is it, I don't know. I know the answer is going to be we need to just do everything, all sort of things like this. But I sometimes get really impatient. I just want to, can you just make it into the law? Like at least some of it. How do you guys feel about that? I've, many people often ask me what I would do if I became like prime minister or something. And then my answer is always, I wouldn't do anything. I would just use the platform to communicate that we are in, in a crisis. I don't believe that these undemocratic decisions, I don't believe that is the way to go. I believe that we need people we need the people on our side and we need people to support this. We need to explain why we need this transition because why would we otherwise do it? If we have seen examples of that happening when politicians have done things that weren't, that didn't have support from the people. And yes, of course, that would, were often the wrong message, measures that impacted the low income, people in low income groups more than those actually responsible. But still, if we do not have the support, it's not going to lead to anything. And that is not democratic. And I believe that democracy is the only way of solving this. So I believe that we need to inform people about what is happening. And from there, we will have this support because we have truth on our side. We have morality on our side and we have a science on our side and we have justice on our side. I feel like you both had quite powerful experiences of the pandemic in different ways. Um, Greta, you said that it's shone a light on uh, the fact that we can't make it without science. And Björk, your new record came out of this sense of rootedness and being in one place and this kind of deeper connection with the soil almost that you, it, it felt like it inspired you both. And obviously it's a very difficult experience for everybody, but I wondered if both of you could talk a little bit about what sort of, what you learned from that experience of that limitation and that strange thing we all went through there. It just happened to be that it, it hit and I was blessed because it was 
if it would have been j- when I was just about to go on, on tour or something, it would have been not a very good thing for me. But it did happen exactly when I was about to start to write a new album. So it actually, I decided to give myself the gift of working slowly and just really dropping like the ego part of me or the sort of will willpower side of me, just letting go of that and going for more and more natural songwriting where I would listen to more that side of my characters. But I think Seven Billion was probably in one way or another did connect to that side of us more and also just the to realize that you're happy with what you got. You don't most of the things you need are in walking distance from your house and also not only what you really need, but also spiritually and good conversation or entertainment. You can do a lot of it just locally with your friends and with family and have psychology sessions in your living room and then change it into a disco. Let, you know, and so it, I think that's some sense of self-sufficiency was really to appreciate what you got. And then, of course, sorry, I have to obviously add to something that I mentioned earlier, which was, you know, just to see the whole world act and all the governments in that quickly to get the vaccine and all the things they did and also just finance everything. I wish they, I just, that they could do the same with the same amount of speed and finance for environmental problems would be incredible and maybe we can hopefully even though we didn't do it immediately but hopefully we can somehow learn from that yes it must have been very frustrating Greta to see how quickly the governments of the world could say you're not allowed to go out of your house and everyone went okay I won't but they're not making the changes for environmental issues in the same way no it wasn't frustrating I'm not gonna lie it was interesting to see the pandemic was a tragedy above all to so many millions and billions of people for, for many reasons but it was interesting to see how they reacted when there was an immediate emergency which the climate crisis also is for countless of people i was interested in if you're a sort of a cultural figure an artist or a musician like you've done so much work in iceland with very specific localized projects like the national park and the aluminium production and everything i wondered if both of you could talk a little about how an artist should be able to balance say localized projects like that and a kind of global message about global warming for instance it's because Greta you're very much uh, on that side in the sense and Bjork you've done so much work in Iceland with specific causes and I wondered is this just all package of what we need to be doing or how are those two things going to work together in the future for success do you think we have to think locally we have to act locally and think globally in every everything we do and for me as I have such a big, a global platform. Yeah, I focus mostly on the global things and try not to focus too much on on the things happening in specific places. Of course, I do that sometimes too. But I mean, I also do like volunteer work here in Stockholm anonymously. So I mean, it's not it's about combining the things, and that is the way forward. I think. Yeah, I agree with Greta. It. I think each person just has to think about themselves in a different ways. And I was actually going to say a similar answer. I think with Greta, she has this global platform that's where she acts. 
I think with me, it's different because I became a musician and I did agree when I first got my platform in the 90s, I did agree to do a few things. And it did frustrate me because I couldn't follow it through. And certainly I was in this kind of nonprofit universe and it was a lot of hierarchy in it and a lot of politics. And you couldn't really follow through if what you were supporting, if it got done. So I just chose, and this is just more for me. I don't think this is for everyone. I think everybody has to choose for themselves. But in my case, I felt that I could have the biggest impact on the environment at home. And just the one thing at a time, I put all the eggs in the basket in the same project and follow it through all the way to the end. And the few projects I've done in Iceland have been like that. And I feel that's why they, I mean, obviously it's a very small country, but, but they, I feel like they, they made some sort of change, not obviously as much as I would have liked to, but I, but I also would like to say it wasn't me alone who did them. There is a big group in Iceland of environmentalists and we work all together and often I'm the face of it. Do you know what I mean? And, but it obviously it is voluntary job it takes a lot of energy and we joke about it here in Iceland, the environmentalists here that we're all, we have to take turns in holding the torch because People burn out. It, you get very exhausted. You have to take turns and people have to attend their lives. And then they come back on the, take the torch. And I'm sure it's the same in Sweden, in all countries. Yeah, exactly. The key is that everyone sees to, to their own opportunities and possibilities and does whatever they can in the way they, they can. Of course, the ones with a bigger platform have a bigger responsibility. And the ones who have bigger carbon footprints have also a bigger, uh, more responsibility to do it. But yeah, everyone can do something. And, and if everyone does something on their own level, on their own terms, then we can achieve anything. I wondered if you, Greta, do you feel like a part of a collective in a sense? Because you're a very unusual figure that rose to, to fame very fast. But you have such a sort of following that do you feel like you're working as part of a team or as an individual? Of course, I'm working as a part of a team. I am part, of course, many groups, but above all, I'm a part of Fridays for Future. And then both Fridays for Future International, Fridays for Future Sweden, and Fridays for Future Stockholm. So we have these local groups where we work. And it media wrongly depicts me as a leading figure or something, but it's not. It's This is a grassroots movement and no one is a spokesperson or no one can decide anything over, over anyone else. We're just acting as a, on, on a grassroots level, which I find very, it's a very good strategy. Yeah. You both come from countries that don't, are not obsessed with celebrity in the same way that like the UK is. And I wondered, do you feel the benefits of that, either of you in any way, or does it allow you to get on with stuff maybe more than if you were living in London or something? Very much. I only have to cross the border and then it's a completely different thing. Basically the only people who, not that's an exaggeration, but Almost everyone who stops me here are tourists, which kind of shows that Swedes are not that impressed, <laughs> which is very nice for me. What about you, Björk, when you're in Iceland? How is it for you? It's the same, what Greta says. If I get stopped, it's a tourist. I can actually choose. If I go to the main street, it's the tourists. So I, but it's, we've, in Iceland, we got tourism went up like many percent last 10 years, which actually overall thing, I think is a good thing because it moved everybody away from building 
than aluminum smelters. And, and also it is more, it brought more versatility to Iceland in both culturally and in many ways. But that's another story. But I think we sacrificed our main street for it, which I'm not sad about. And, and we, I just walk the two streets away and then Icelandic people never bother me. So Iceland is quite cool like that. Taxi drivers from the airport will tell me, oh, I'm at Ukraine in the swimming pool. And don't you think you're any more important than I am and shit like that. So <laughs> I appreciate, I appreciate coming from a country like that. That's it's it. a culture. We have something called Jantelag, which is no one is more important than anyone else. And you have to stay grounded, which is very good. I can walk into a random museum and there can be big placards of me and big, like several meter long banners of me. And I can stand there looking at it. And yeah, I see people looking at the banner and they look at me and then they walk away because they become embarrassed and things like that happen all the time and it's just really funny <laughs> it's amazing is it a feeling of not wanting to admit that they recognized you because it might give you a big head or something like that <laughs> probably but also i just want to leave you alone yeah i would say yes some of it maybe but also i think it's a respect for your personal life that you are very often you are with friends or relatives and they don't want to interrupt you and they understand maybe because Iceland's culture is built on famous authors and chess champions. So they're eccentric introvert celebrities and people understood that in order for them to be able to give us more books or win more chess championships with the Soviets back in the Cold War, just let them be and just let them give them space and not bother them. Björk was talking earlier about the matriarchal subtext really in, in the new record. And I wondered whether, uh, Greta, maybe you could talk to me a little about the role of women and girls within the environment movement and maybe Björk as well, because there it does seem to be that within your generation, there's a lot of young women who are speaking up for these causes. And do you see the importance of that? Or do you feel that it's more of a, it's everybody that should be doing it and we shouldn't even differentiate kind of thing. It's both. Of course, we need everyone on board, but we have to acknowledge also that the same harmful systems that are wrecking the environment, same harmful systems that are dividing people are causing social inequality and, and so on. These, the patriarchy and racism and these things are very connected to ex ex extractivism and, and just destroying the environment. It's what they boil down to more or less the same idea. So I do think that this, these fights need to be connected. The fem feminism, the fight for social justice, anti-racism, anti-fascism and climate justice are in many cases the same fights. And I think we have been bad at, we've tried, but we have not been good enough to join forces and communicate that this is a lot in many more ways than we think it's one struggle. Yes, Björk, is that what you meant really by a matriarchal connection to nature, an anti-patriarchal feeling in the, the sort of thoughts that fed into your new album? Yes, to be honest, I've been working in that area for 20 years or more, but I think more and more, I just, as I grow, get older, I just, I am less diplomatic. <laughs> I'm like less like spending a whole sentence. I just say matriarchal because it, it just basically is a shortcut to explain what I'm trying to say. It just means, you know, an area which is more territory created from a women's point of view, that's more inclusive. It's more pro-nature, pro-children, pro-hope, pro 
a lot of things. And obviously I'm a musician, so I'm thinking more in a sort of abstraction of that, which is the sonic version of that. But I felt especially last 10 years, it's been more easier for me because I, I do a lot of interviews and it's, it's easy for me just to say matriarchal and then I don't have to speak for five minutes. It's like a shortcut to explain my point of view. Also just on queer culture, we could talk about ours just about that, what that means. I think it's, uh, it is, it is a point of view and it is a philosophy and it is stance that is, it's, it runs through everything, not just the family or, or feminism. It is also can be a sound or a smell or a philosophy or an ecology or a, it runs through every essence there is. And yes. that, in that sense, it's very holistic or more way of looking at things. I was curious to know what you thought about the UK from afar <laughs> at the moment and the chaos that we, uh, we are in politically. And maybe if you'd like to look at it from an environmental point of view, I know Greta that you're very aware of our environmental sins, but I wonder what your feeling towards the UK is at the moment. <laughs> it just looks like so much chaos. <laughs> I when I talk to people who live in the UK, they just say that it's it's like the dog meme. Like this is fine. <laughs> That's the, the 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 clearest image I have of the UK right now. <laughs> this has been a special episode of World Review presented by me, Kate Mossman, and my guests, Greta Thunberg and Björk. The producer is Adrian Bradley, and the team will be back later in the week. Until next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.